Hello. Welcome to Science Factual. Prepare yourself for factual download. Sequence commencing. I heard joke once. Man goes to doctor. Says he's depressed. Life seems harsh and cruel. Says he feels all alone in threatening world. Doctor says treatment is simple. The great clown Pagliacci is in town. Go see him. That should pick you up. Man bursts into tears. But doctor, he says, I am Pagliacci. Good joke. Everybody laugh. Roll on snare drum. Curtains. Oh, Rorschach, you should have been the comedian, not Edward Blake. Good dystopian day to you all, and welcome to Science Factual, the show that delves into interesting facts behind your favorite sci-fi. This week is yet another first for Sci-Fact, because we're covering our first graphic novel, Watchmen, written by Alan Moore and illustrated by Dave Gibbons, as well as the 2009 Zack Snyder adaptation film. I'll talk a bit about the series too, but I think that it's deserving of its own analysis, so we'll cover that in a future episode. I'm stoked for this week's interview. I got to talk all about Watchmen with Jake Silberman, an awesome Portland comedian, before the Helium open mic that takes place there on Tuesdays with sign-ups starting at 6. Uh, First-timers to Helium are very much welcome, and I highly suggest it because it's an awesome stage and a great audience. But before we get thrown out of a window and land face-first on the sidewalk that is this episode, I think it's only right to issue a... Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Because even though this classic comic book has been available as a complete story since 1987, it is understandable that most people have either just seen the movie or didn't know that it was based on a comic book series at all, not to mention that it was a DC property. So if you're not particularly familiar with the comic book, you'll definitely learn about a few plot points that were either skimmed over or just flat out glossed over and written out of the movie script due to time management. So without further delay, and since according to Dr. Manhattan, time is meaningless, let's get into some facts behind the comic book and movie. Oh, and don't you worry, this week's set of water cooler facts get all up in the mind behind the story, writer Alan Moore. But first, let's start things off with a quick synopsis of the story as it's told in the graphic novel. In October 1985, New York City detectives are investigating the murder of Edward Blake. With the police having no leads, costumed vigilante Rorschach decides to probe further. Rorschach deduces Blake to have been the true identity of the comedian, a costumed hero employed by the U.S. government after finding his costume and signature smiley face pin badge. Rorschach believes that he has discovered a plot to terminate costume adventurers and sets about warning four of his retired comrades. Daniel Dryberg, an inventor and formerly the second Night Owl, the super-powered and emotionally detached John Osterman, codenamed Dr. Manhattan, and his lover Lori Yuspejic, otherwise known as Lori Jupiter, the second Silk Spectre, and Adrian Veidt, who was once the hero Ozymandias, whose name is in reference to the poem by Percy Bysshe Shelley, husband to his more famous partner, Mary Shelley. Dryberg, Veet, and Manhattan attend Blake's funeral, where Dryberg tosses Blake's pin badge in his coffin before he is buried. Manhattan is later accused on national television of being the cause of cancer in friends and former colleagues. When the government takes the accusation seriously, Manhattan exiles himself to Mars. As the U.S. depends on Manhattan as a strategic military asset, his departure throws humanity into political turmoil, with the Soviets invading Afghanistan to capitalize on the perceived American weakness. Rorschach's concerns appear vindicated when Veet narrowly survives an assassination attempt. Rorschach himself is framed for murdering a former supervillain named Moloch. Though he attempted to flee from the authorities, Rorschach is ultimately captured and unmasked as Walter Kovacs. Neglected in her relationship with the once-human Manhattan, whose now godlike powers and transformation have removed him completely from the everyday concerns of living beings, and no longer kept on retainer by the government, Yuspejic stays with Dryberg, 
they begin a romance, don their costumes, and resume vigilante work as they grow closer together. With Dryberg starting to believe some aspects of Rorschach's conspiracy theory, the pair take it upon themselves to break him out of prison. After looking back on his own personal history, Manhattan places the fate of his involvement with human affairs in Yuspejik's hands. He teleports her to Mars to make the case for emotional investment. During the course of the argument, Yuspejik is forced to come to terms with the fact that Blake, who once attempted to rape her mother, the original Silk Spectre, was in fact her biological father following a second consensual relationship. This discovery, reflecting the complexity of human emotions and relationships, reignites Manhattan's interest in humanity. On Earth, Night Owl and Rorschach continue to uncover the conspiracy and find evidence that Veet may be behind the plan. Rorschach writes his suspicions about Veet in his journal, in which he has been recording his entire investigation, and mails it to New Frontiersman, a local right-wing newspaper. The pair then confront Veet at his Antarctic retreat. Say that five times fast. Veet explains his underlying plan is to save humanity from impending nuclear war by faking an alien invasion in New York, which will annihilate half of the city's population. He hopes that this will unite the superpowers against a perceived common enemy. He also reveals that he had murdered the comedian when he discovered his plan, arranged for Manhattan's past associates to contract cancer, staged the attempt on his own life in order to place himself above suspicion, and killed Moloch in order to frame Rorschach. This was all done in an attempt to prevent his plan from being exposed. Night Owl and Rorschach find Veet's logic callous and abhorrent. They say that they will stop him, but Veet reveals that he has already enacted his plan before they arrived. When Manhattan and Yuspejik arrive back on Earth, they are confronted by mass destruction and death in New York, with a gigantic squid-like creature created by Veet's laboratories dead in the middle of the city. Manhattan notices his prescient abilities are limited by tachyons emanating from the Antarctic, and the pair teleport there. They discover Veet's involvement and confront him. Veet shows everyone the news broadcast confirming that the emergence of a new threat has indeed prompted peaceful cooperation between the superpowers. This leads almost all present to agree that concealing the truth is in the best interest of the world's newfound peace. Rorschach refuses to compromise and leaves intent on revealing the truth. As he is making his way back, he's confronted by Manhattan who argues that, at this point, the truth can only hurt. Rorschach declares that Manhattan will have to kill him in order to stop him from exposing V, which Manhattan duly does. Manhattan then wanders through the base and finds V, who asks him if he did the right thing in the end. Manhattan cryptically responds that, quote, nothing ever ends, before leaving Earth. Dryberg and Juspejic go into hiding under their new identities and continue their romance. Back in New York, the editor at New Frontiersman asks his assistant to find some filler material from the quote, crank file, a collection of rejected submissions to the paper, many of which have not even been reviewed yet. The series ends with the reporter reaching toward the pile of discarded submissions, near the top of which is Rorschach's journal. By the way, the underlying music you just heard during that segment is called, and I think I'm butchering this, Pruitt, Igo, and Prophecies by the Philip Glass Ensemble. And it serves for all intents and purposes as the theme for Dr. Manhattan. Well, already, I'm going to start off with the major difference between the movie and the comic. Featuring a non-linear plot, a large ensemble of characters, and multiple narratives, Watchmen is a story that is pretty much bursting at the seams as a single feature film, which explains why the shortest version is still 162 minutes long. And it's impressive to see just how much from the comic it does manage to include. That being said, there is a whole arc from the source material that isn't really present at all in the adaptation, and it winds up having a significant effect on the way that things play out in the third act. In Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons' limited comic series, the arc in question here is a subtle presence basically throughout the entire run, but the significance of it is really only made known at the very end. Throughout the book, there are references to a strange mystery involving a number of prominent artists, scientists, and creative figures who have completely disappeared from the public eye. While the journalists at the New Frontiersmen suggest that there is some kind of Cuban plot afoot, the truth is that it's another aspect of the scheme orchestrated by Adrian Veidt, specifically the creation of a giant creature that winds up changing the world. 
In the Watchmen comic, Ozymandias' big plan isn't to frame Dr. Manhattan for killing 15 million people, but instead get everybody in the world to believe that the universe is on the verge of being invaded by a species of tentacle monsters from another dimension. He does this by hiring the aforementioned, quote, missing geniuses to genetically engineer a single squid-like creature, and then drops said creature in the middle of New York City. The result is that half of the city's population is killed by the weight of the monster, its exploding limbs, or the psychic shockwave it's programmed to emit. This is an aspect of the comic that is all but totally replaced in the Watchmen movie, but it should be noted that, at the very least, there is reference made to it. Specifically, the name of the device that Adrian Veidt builds in the blockbuster is the Subquantum Unifying Intrinsic Device, which is displayed as squid on the monitor shown shortly before the detonation in New York City. So why the drastic change? Zack Snyder was asked by MTV in a post-release interview in 2009 to discuss why it was that Watchmen's movie ending implemented a deviation from the comics, and in short, there was a choice to be made behind the scenes whether the film should add an extra plot thread or instead feature more of the established characters. Snyder was quoted as saying, The reason that the squid got taken out of the movie was so there'd be more Rorschach and a little bit more Manhattan because we did the math and we figured it took about 15 minutes to properly explain the squid's appearance, otherwise it seems pretty crazy and shoehorned in." End quote. And that's not a hard point to take. While it's easy for an audience to comprehend that Dr. Manhattan's energy signature could be used to decimate cities around the globe, creating a giant alien monster that falls out of the sky requires a hell of a lot more setup. The approximate 15 minutes of extra material would have pushed the theatrical cut of the movie to nearly three hours, and that wasn't something that the filmmakers wanted to do. This is all bullshit. You know, for a guy who calls himself the comedian, I can never tell when you're joking. Watch me. That's the real joke. It didn't work 15 years ago, sure as hell ain't gonna work now just because you want to keep playing cowboys and Indians. Maybe we should agree on no drinking at meetings. <laughs> Okay, here are a few rapid-fire facts about the comic book. Watchmen, created by writer Alan Moore and artist Dave Gibbons, first appeared in the 1985 issue of DC Spotlight, the 50th anniversary special. It was eventually published as a 12-issue maxi-series from DC Comics, cover dated September 1986 to October 1987. Moore named William S. Burroughs as one of his main influences during the conception of Watchmen. He admired Burroughs' use of repeated symbols that would become laden with meaning in Burroughs' only comic strip, The Unspeakable Mr. Hart, which appeared in the British underground magazine Cyclops. It was subsequently collected in 1987 as a DC Comics trade paperback that has had at least 24 printings as of March 2017. Watchmen originated from a story proposal Moore submitted to DC featuring superhero characters that the company had acquired from Charlton Comics. Most notably from recent fame, Peacemaker, whose appearance in the second Suicide Squad installment, as well as the series starring John Cena, has garnered recent acclaim. Moore's proposed story would have left many of the characters unusable for future stories, so managing editor Dick Giordano convinced Moore to create original characters instead. The initial premise of the series was to examine what superheroes would be like in a credible real world, and the title of the series refers to the age-old question, Who Watches the Watchmen? A scene that you can see in the movie of a man spray-painting on a window during a riot. Gibbons used a nine-panel grid layout throughout the series and added recurring symbols such as a blood-stained smiley face. All but the last issue features supplemental fictional documents that add to the series' backstory. Structured at times as a non-linear narrative, the story skips through space, time, and plot. In the same manner, entire scenes and dialogue have parallels with others through synchronicity, coincidence, and repeated imagery. Which I think speaks to Moore's magical tendencies insofar as the power in symbolism and repeated imagery. A commercial success, Watchmen has received critical acclaim both in the comics and mainstream press, and was recognized in Time's list of the 100 best novels as one of the best English-language novels published since 1923. 
In a retrospective review, the BBC's Nicholas Barber described it as, quote, the moment comic books grew up. Watchmen features a story within a story in the form of Tales of the Black Freighter, a fictional comic book from which scenes appear in issues 3, 5, 8, 10, and 11. The fictional comic story Marooned is read by a youth in New York City, and the comic within the comic is, on the first layer, a comparison to Veet. So, in that way, the pirate comic within Watchmen speaks as a foreshadowing of this man who becomes the very monster he seeks to fight. DC Comics published Before Watchmen, a series of nine prequel miniseries in 2012, and A Doomsday Clock, a 12-issue limited series. Both of these series were created without Moore's or Gibbons' involvement, and 2019 saw the release of the Watchmen series that acts as a sequel and framework for the 2009 film. Gibbons created a smiley face badge as an element of the comedian's costume in order to lighten the overall design, later adding a splash of blood on the badge to imply his murder. Gibbons said the creators came to regard the bloodstained smiley face as a symbol for the whole series. With the addition of a blood splash over the eye, the face's meaning was altered to become something simultaneously radical and simple enough for the first issue's cover to avoid human detail. Although most evocations of the central image were created on purpose, others were coincidental. Moore mentioned in particular that the little plugs on the spark hydrants, if you turn them upside down, you discover a little smiley face. Other symbols, images, and illusions that appeared throughout the series often emerged unexpectedly, and Moore is quoted as saying, The whole thing with Watchmen has just been loads of these little bits of synchronicity popping up all over the place. Up next, we have an interview with comedian Jake Silberman on location at Portland's premier comedy club, Helium. If you haven't had a chance to check out the many shows and stacked roster of comedians that come through this club, I highly encourage visiting their website or social media to see who's going to be coming through town whenever you need a laugh. And if you're like me, that's pretty often. But enough about my psychosis, diagnosed or otherwise, here's this week's interview. Sure. If you if that red light goes off, will you tell me if you notice yeah. it? Or, yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. Because that's uh, that's the whole thing. Brains behind the operation. Right. This thing. Yeah. Right. I don't do anything. It's the little men inside. The of audio this. is okay on this. It's not bad. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I have to do a lot of finagling. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Well, I, yeah. I mean, I I can deal with Weezer. Oh, I can too. Yeah, I was more just wondering about yeah, like yeah. yeah, if you had to you know audio shit, but yeah, yeah, dude, whatevs. What is well, uh, the voice other than my own uh, that you hear? That's this is Jake Silberman. How's it going? It's going, man. Uh, thanks for joining me. We're we're at Helium uh, Comedy Club in Southeast Portland on Tuesday. There's an open mic here that is pretty awesome. Yeah, it's uh, a fun one. Yeah, it's probably great. the best open mic in the city. It is the would, best it open is mic. The best I don't know why. It's probably yeah. it's 100 percent the best open mic in the city. Carlsberg beer from England yeah their slogan is probably the best beer in the world which is probably the best slogan in the world yeah so it's uh, the inference still right it still holds right it does yeah. but it, yeah this is the spot yeah it's a great spot great audience um, it's a great segue <laughs> into into mainlining stand up comedy oh I was like the watchman yeah. how is this a, okay I was like no they weren't open micing that shit baby no that was pure that was that was the good shit. Mm. Yeah, I, uh, I I love the storyline or just the premise of Watchmen in general. Yeah. Um, you know, because the first issue was in September of 1986, and it looks back like retrospectively as to, like what how would the world have been different? Should there have been like vigilantes or superheroes that influenced like political or socioeconomic you know right situations? Yeah. For instance, winning the Vietnam War instead right. of it just being this war of attrition that we just like fizzled out of. Right. Uh, but it did take a superhuman Manhattan to make that happen. Totally. So it's, it's not like you know, like a bunch of vigilantes or night owls are going right. to take it across. The yeah, I mean, line. he was really the only one that he actually was, like yeah. did anything. Well, the comedian the was comedian, doing shit, but it was bad shit. But he, he and shit. he was also just like basically like a super soldier. Right. Whereas. Manhattan yeah, yeah. was like an actual like out of this world character. Did did the comedian have? He didn't have superpowers. He was just no, he was none just of them do. Right, 
Yeah. Literally, no, that, I mean, literally, that's why that's like none of them yeah. have superpowers except yeah. Doctor Manhattan. Right. It's like a bunch of normal people, and then him. Yeah. His, well, well that, his his superpower, I would say, is being an asshole. Who? The comedian. Oh, the comedian. If, if he, yes. If he yeah, did yeah, have yeah. a superpower, it yeah. would be uh, asshole in chief. Right. Um, so let me ask you, Jake. What's your Instagram? My Instagram is at the comedian Jake. Nice. Yeah. That's a, that's a good get. Yeah. Yeah. It was a good get. Yeah. I got the, everything under that. My website is thecomedianjake.com. My Twitter's comedianjake. The email, yeah, it's all there. Nice. It's pretty, you're, yeah. You're currently you're not in Twitter jail. That, no, that's surprising. Not in Twitter. Yeah, I don't use it that much. Okay. Yeah, it's not really a thing that I enjoy, you know, to do or to participate in. Well, because it's not real. It's not real life. It's not it's, real, and um, yeah, I just find the people who do that all the time. I just am wondering maybe a little bit about their mental health and I have friends who are on it all the time tweeting all the time and it's just like this is not good for you I see what it's doing to you sure so yeah yeah I I never I've never really picked it up for for that reason I I think exactly it's kind of like you know like I I, I don't want to do heroin you know because like I don't want to chase the dragon and also like I don't I I see what it does to people I don't want to be that guy on the street corner is nodding over but, yeah, you know, I think like, <clears throat> it's like a if, thing if I was that you kill myself. I would OD on heroin. Oh, know, okay. Just just the once, right? Because then it's after that you're chasing that that first high, and if it's just yeah. a one and done, then you know. Man, you already have this planned I, out. I kind of got it planned out. Okay. Sorry, does honey. your wife know? Or yeah, really? she. I mean, we have we have we've got plans. Oh wow. Yeah, we've got death by suicide. Um, how long have you guys been married for? Uh, it'll be five years uh, this up this upcoming how old August. Are you? I'm 32. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I thought you were like mid-20s. Thank you. Yeah, you have a younger vibe about you. Cheers. Yeah. I'll take it. I'll there take it go. where I can get it. Hell yeah. Um, so how, how did you get started in stand-up comedy, Jake? I've been doing stand-up for nine years. Um, okay. I did my first open mic in Minneapolis, where I'm from, and I was there for about a month, and then I ended up kind of coming out to Portland. It's kind of... Second hand, like not really related to coming out here for stand up, but just kept uh, when I got here, I was, realized there was a good scene, so I kept doing it. But great scene here, yeah, yeah, uh, and it was a lot better nine years ago. Um, mm. <laughs> I should have been here, well, yeah, it is what it is. Um, I, I started just listening to podcasts, yeah, uh, nine years ago. I was listening to like Bill Burr's podcast, and I was like, oh, these the Monday morning podcast, yeah, and Pete Davidson's stream of consciousness is yeah. so good. And yeah. I just got interested in, like, oh, comics seem, like, pretty interesting. And yeah. then uh, was like, oh, maybe I'll try it. And then I just did and kind of got hooked right away, and that's kind of been it. So, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Uh, where's the, where's your favorite place to do comedy? Not to, not to single out a single you know, particular place, but, like, is there... I mean, here is the Helium. best. Yeah. yeah. Helium rocks. I mean, when it's full here, in here... The last show I saw you do here at Helium, fucking... You crushed it. You were, oh, you were thanks. Headline, I think, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. A couple... It was like a month ago now, about yeah. About a month ago, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, it was great. Uh, Helium is great. They've been super cool to me over the years, and it's been fun to work up their system, but uh, I was just in Chicago this fall, and Chicago has a great scene, a very cool. fun town to perform comedy in yeah, as well, just as a city in general, yeah. so... No, I love the Midwest. We we have family in Minneapolis. We love Minneapolis, Oh, too, nice. So, yeah, okay. Yeah, we, uh, so... We're definitely going to check it out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, it's a good talent. Yeah, I mean, the Midwest is good good for comedy for sure. Yeah. yeah. So, so you've been doing it about ten, about 10 years now? Nine. nine, nine I just years. hit nine. Oh, cool. Like a okay. couple weeks ago, yeah. Very cool. Yep. Right on. Well, uh, bringing it to Watchmen, what, what was your first exposure to... I'll, I'll ask that question in two parts. One is the comic book or graphic novel, how yeah. you want to reference it. Yeah, yeah. And, and or the movie. I don't remember. Uh, I definitely read the the graphic novel first. I yeah. do not remember. I think I read it in college, so early twenties. Um, I don't know if it was just one of those things that was like you know enough people had maybe mentioned it or something. But uh, I read it and really really liked it. Um, you know, right away, which is like it's well, like it's, it's visually striking. The, visuals the, the are storyline. The story is amazing. I, the, I think it's yeah. A the, really, really good story. You know, like, there's a... With the, like, kind of reimagined history, it's, it, like, has some basis in reality. Mm-hmm. Like, um, 
Well, it's kind of like Nixon King, is king pre- of the High Castle. Right. Like, Ash, you know, yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Like, Nixon is still president in yeah. that world. Um, but, like, yeah, like, there's... You feel like there's kind of stakes when you read it. You know, and I oh, do, like, sure. totally, yeah. like... You're invested through the whole, right. like, the whole story. Right. It, it is a page-turner through yeah. and through. Yeah. And I like... Al- mean, Alan Moore is a great writer, and he's a, he's a great... Um, sectionalist like he he, he mm-hmm. knows how to it's a story yeah, I mean, you yeah. know how to keep you going keep you and going keep, from different perspectives and parts that, right you know back and forth that are you know yeah, relative the, to each other the backstories are all fun oh yeah getting to, like how people like you like like get to read how they became who they are and where you're seeing them at right and uh whatever probably like i said early 20s read the graphic novel really liked it like when the movie was coming out i was like oh shit this is gonna be dope Hated the movie. Oh, okay. That was going to be another question. Like, did you like the adaptation? Did not like okay. the movie. Um, I, I know I'm going to get a lot of backlash for this, but did you like it? I didn't hate it. I mean, that's fine. Yeah. I just because I know that's a hard stance to take. Well, that I, yeah, that I, know, I didn't you're like, hate you're, it. You're walking <laughs> out a, there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's just like you do realize with us with the Watchmen, and then like you can extend it to any you know any media is like. The story took place in one medium, which was a comic book graphic novel form. That's how the story in multiple was. Multiple iterations. Yes, yeah. but you know, as I read it, it was one single thing. Sure, but right, exactly, right, yeah. like there are prequels and sequels, and there's there's you know other canonical pieces that were all graphic novels or comic books. Yes, that existed prior to the movie, and like I think people's expectations were a little too broad. Well, so I've never read any of the prequels. Okay. I, I do know that they made some books where it was like, oh... And references to Watchmen characters in some of the Doomsday uh, comic books, but... Okay, yeah. yeah. It, it's uh, it, it's not anything, like, that's pure canon, like right. the Star Wars universe right, has right, been right. expanded on so much. And, like, right. it's all, like... You know, Part of it, yeah. Right. It, it's more, like, just referential and, and things like that. Yeah. So I've only read the, like, actual... The, the Watchmen, the sure. graphic novel. Yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, it's told in a way that, it, you know, however long the author, uh, you know, and, the, and, like, and how they decide to present it visually, that's, that's their decision. That's how they had – that's how they planned it out. That's how the idea was. Well, it's always tough to adapt, especially a graphic novel because it has its own visual – Signature and it has its own yeah. pace. Yeah, you know, like in the movie, the one thing I didn't like is that you were just like, okay, so like, what would have taken three or four pages, which you know your brain takes time to take in, it, it soaks in a different. Yeah, that's covered in fifteen seconds right. in the movie. Right, right, and oh, it a lot just, of it is, is compressed, and, and it just yeah. ruins the pacing of the story. Yeah, I feel for like sure. because for sure. yeah, I can see that. Well, also, it's like you know, that's in, why they made it into a series. There was a series as well that kind of picks that up, and so like I think of the series. Oh, the uh, HBO format. thing? Yeah. Yeah, I haven't watched that yet either. I think either. that format is definitely... Better? It's better. It allows for more expansion. Yeah. Like you can definitely... I, I could definitely see this in a, you know, eight-part series. Right. Uh, yeah, I eight, mean... Eight-hour, eight you know, episodes. Well, even like... Okay, so like, you know, the, the thing that they have between a lot of the chapters, the early chapters especially, is the sections from Hollis's book. Mm. Like, yep. that's just gone in the movie. Right, you know, like you get to read like three or four pages yeah, yeah. back history. That's abs- yeah. There's a, there's there are whole pages dedicated to it. And then you have that like weird one with the night owl where he's like mm-hmm. they they print like one of his research papers, and it talks about how the owl is. Hunting. I would have loved to have seen that format in the movie if they if they would have had those. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Almost Sin City style, or as right. you know, like kind of breaks in the film. Right. Um. You know, like. I, at least the the one thing that I think that they tried to hold tr- to, like the truest, is Rorschach's arc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it follows his investigation, right? And eventual, yeah. you know, yeah, uh, yeah. martyrdom, right? Through and through, you know, like they they change elements or they you know kind of spoon feed or they they compress different you know parts. Yeah. But I I would say that it holds truest to that, and. Um, the prison fighting scene is pretty raw. Yeah, and that's like thing. He you douses just... a guy in Greece. Oh yeah, it's totally. Pretty, pretty badass. Yeah, I, I would say it's vis- the movie is visually striking. It is. It is. Yeah, and they yeah. Uh, like I remember the one of the scenes that I did like in the movie was when Hollis is getting murdered, mm. and like they do the f- flashbacks where he's like thinking he's taking out the like 
bad guys in like the 30s and the 40s. Mm. I don't know if you remember that, but like, I know. he's like, you know, the, what do they call it, the knot heads or the top heads? The, like the street thugs and the watchmen. They're like the, the criminal gang. They're called like the knot oh, tops or oh, something. Oh, that's right. The... In, the, in the thing, like he's, his house gets broken into. Okay. And they beat him to death. That's how he dies. Okay. Um, but in the movie, I remember they do a really good job of like, they kind of, so they'll flash back. They'll flash back, and he's like throwing a punch. And in his mind, he's like, "Oh, I'm beating up a robber in the mm. '40s." And then, but you really see it's like an old man. Like I liked that part of it, but yeah, overall, it was just it was very compressed. It was it didn't have the same feel. They obviously switched the ending a little bit, which was just kind of like, okay, why did you do that? Sure, they could have just gone ahead with the actual animation right, like, part and like ex- you know, extrapolate on that. And so I, I mean, yeah, it's although they they did uh, the interaction between Manhattan and Rorschach, it, it still I think had the same amount of uh, poignancy yeah. from the movie to right, the, right. the graphic novel. So uh, that brings me to my next question, which is, who is your favorite character? That's tough. I mean. Probably Rorschach, I guess. I mean, I feel like it's kind of an obvious one. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you just kind of, like, respect his determination and his, like, unbending moral philosophy on, like, good is good and bad is bad. Um, And, I, you know, that is cool. Manhattan's like origin story is very cool. Like I like Manhattan's origin story. Like that is very yeah. cool, and like I like how that you know like that is pretty sweet, both in the book and you know in the movie, uh, where it's just like you know he basically puts himself back together after getting ripped apart atomically. So his which which is very visually striking, and I, I actually think that they do a great job of of the CGI version of the comic book. Version. Yeah. Um, you know, and and really, and actually extrapolate on it a little bit. Yeah, it is. I mean, it was built to become a movie eventually. Well, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all those things were. Yeah, yeah, right. And, and I think that's you know, once they ran out of uh, prime material, that's why we start seeing things like multiverse with Spider-Man and right. you know, just, just like uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. You know, yeah, I haven't watched most of the, most of the Marvel movies. It, what is this? Is this? DC, who's whose property DC. is yeah, this? DC. DC owns Watchmen. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Um, which I I didn't I didn't know at first either. Uh, I was that was one of the first questions that I had was like mm. what was who who published? Yeah. So speaking of Alan Moore, the guy who wrote it, he also wrote V for Vendetta. Yep. Um, Read that. Yeah. Uh, and that movie I thought little, did a lot better job okay. at like yeah. That, so not not to go off on a tangent, but yeah, same, that was a much better adi- movie adaptation. than Watchmen, I think. Yeah. In terms of like taking over, like that was yeah. I I really enjoyed V for Vendetta as a movie and as a book because it, it took more of the core ideas yeah that were vital to the story and and displayed them in a meaningful way as opposed to because there was a lot that was missing. Yeah, they did, I don't know, like, they do a good job of, like, you know... I forget who portrays V, but... Um, the guy who played Agent Smith in, uh, The Matrix. Oh, really? Yeah, what's, I don't know his name, but yeah, he, he had a run there where he was Agent Smith, and he was V for Vendetta, and he was in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, Elrond, right? He, uh, one of the elves. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Elder elves, yep, yeah. Yep, they did a good job at the dystopian government... In V for Vendetta, which can be like super corny if it's done poorly, but they did a really good job in the movie of making it cool and making it uh, feel like, oh shit, there's, you know, people are getting, like, you know, they they you're invested in the plot. Yeah, and you you know, like they're you know they're killing fucking the the news guy who makes like the John Stewart guy who makes like the jokes kind of thing. Like right. they fucking come to his house and fucking beat him over the head and kill him in front of Natalie Portman. Yeah. yeah, it's legit. To, to sh- yeah, to show him his seriousness. Right. Like he's, he's not just a hopeless romantic. He's a guy of action. Yeah. 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 Uh, Hugo Weaving. That's his name. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which you could have put a gun to my head. I had to look it up, folks. No. Yeah. That was no that idea. was uh, that was not in the nerd bank. The, yeah. The good old nerd bank. I didn't yeah. have that one. Stored up. See, that's why I'm, I'm nervous to do trivia. Like, I, I have a lot of knowledge. Oh, Are you, uh, you're into that? A little bit. Okay. Yeah. But, like, uh, the the Joes over at Growler's Tap Room on 82nd, they have a Star Trek trivia, and I just, I've been wanting to go, but I don't want to embarrass myself. 
Yeah, I, you wouldn't want to look stupid in front of those people. That's so true. <laughs> would really ruin you. It might. Letting it, some that's, nerds that's on 82nd beat you in Star Trek <laughs> trivia. I don't. I don't know if I'd ever recover. Yeah, I mean, how could you? Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, do you have a least favorite character? Because I, I, I love to hate Veet. You know, Adrian Veet. Um. Mandios. I mean, I don't know. When I was reading it through this time, this is like the fourth time I've read it. Yeah. I was like, for some reason, like more annoyed than I had been with. Uh, what's John's wife name? Uh, Lori. Jupiter. Lori, yeah, yeah. Jupiter. Lori Jupiter. Yeah. I don't know. She just rubbed me the wrong way this time. I think that the comic book version was more involved. Um, I, I, okay. I, okay, I, look. I, I think the, that the movie version was a little bit more Mad Men-ish. Yeah, she, yeah, she was definitely just more of like a day. And dude, that sex scene in the movie, pretty hot. Yeah. Pretty hot. Yeah. But they also would you, would you if there was a a Doctor Manhattan of your liking, whatever whatever preference of yeah. of nuclear person fuck buddy yeah yeah you would you would, would I hit yeah I mean for the story of course yeah for the story for the gram for the gram yeah I mean yeah, yeah. I mean she's like basically fucking like a nuclear ghost yeah that's <laughs> I mean yeah why wouldn't you yeah but would you. Because there there is some sort of ectoplasm splooge involved, I'm assuming. Well, that's the thing. Is like, does he even nut? Like, he doesn't have sperm. Like, does he even orgasm? He's like a he energy better, being. He better make her orgasm like crazy. I think that's that was part of it too. Like, he just like. Well, yeah, he's like a god. Yeah, because he can make that peen whatever he wants. He's like, here's the perfect. one. Well, dude, that, in the fucking movie. Mm, yeah, yeah. Mad schlong. Yeah. Right. Oh yeah, he's huge. Hanging, yeah, he's, he, he, he's huge, hanging peace. Huge hype, dude. Yeah, he's hanging peace. But it's like, yeah, you like definitely I mean, not Jewish. I mean, would you re? Would you make yourself an, a man, and then just give yourself like a normal dick? No. See, he I re, think it's, I think it's kind of more. Of, I think recon- it's kind of more of a flex. Reconstitute himself. He's like, I'm gonna have a fucking. Well, also though, it's like he can grow and like because yeah, he can, can get huge. Right. I mean, that's the other thing. He can expand his thing. How they won Vietnam. So yeah, yeah, he's literally like, which is also like, I guess I don't really remember the total timeline, but like, when did that happen to him? Because like, why, why didn't he go in there day one of Vietnam? Like, why, why was there even a Vietnam War? Like, they must have, right. they must have, that must have happened to him, and then he like was like, all right, I guess I'll be a soldier. I, I think, I think that. Um... I'd have to look back, but it's like it may it, it may have coincided with the beginning throws, and it took him a couple of you know weeks or a month and a half or so to reconstitute. I think it was like. I mean, I guess I also don't know exactly when he started working for the government, but I don't, I don't think they go too much into that. Yeah, but I, I think that the inference is that he was part of some sort of atomic program. So I guess that age and Nam started in sixty one, sixty two, technically, yeah. like. But so, so yeah, yeah, so he was, you know, he, he probably was probably the late late 50s. Well, the way he dresses too is like, yeah, it's yeah. A kind of a 50s haircut and the 50s, yeah. yeah. 50s vibe. But man, it's a sad story. A little bit. I mean, he just wanted to be with that woman. Right. Like he just wanted a normal life and also like his whole thing is like his fucking dad was like no son of mine will be a watchmaker when time has no meaning or whatever. Like yeah, his dad, dad is, is just like you're not gonna be a fucking watchmaker, dude. Like, cause he reads about the nuclear the bombs, and then he's just right. like, fuck this. All he wanted to do is make watches and be married to that woman, and yeah. he got neither. He got no watchmaking career, which led him to be in the nuclear field, which you know, well, and that that's, ended his life. Kind that of scene in the movie where he's in the chamber, yeah, and the device powers up and his watch is stopping. Right, was I? I thought that was a, yeah, it was a pretty beautiful scene that you can only really demonstrate with the a CGI movie, yeah. technology that, as opposed to which they I think they have a couple of panels you know in, yeah. in, the, in the comic book which is where they derive the idea from but um, you know I, yeah it's uh, at times they do a pretty decent I'm gonna win you back they, they do a pretty decent <laughs> I'll never watch that <laughs> movie again in my life so I will no, watch that's not true. you'll be on an airplane sometime and I'll do and, it I'll yeah. be like fuck it yep yeah, right. because of this conversation yeah 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 okay I mean, it definitely got me more interested in the graphic novel as a medium, for sure. Like, after yeah. reading The Watchmen, I was like, oh, shit, like, what else can I do? And then I ended up, yeah, kind of be- becoming, like, just much more into 
Because I was, I was out never a comic book nerd kid. No, I wasn't. Like, I wasn't um, either. My dad and I my had some, but I wasn't like at the comic book store. No, made, yeah. My dad and my brother and started collecting them, but really mostly the old ones from my dad's childhood. Like they never really got into new, and my dad kind of hated the newer yeah. comics. My father's Dutch, so he had like the owner's manual to his lawnmower to read. Oh shit! <laughs> yeah, that's boring. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, are the Dutch people like boring or something? Or well, wait, his, his father was very Germanic. Oh, so he was okay. just so like a stoic like, dude. Just like, yeah, no time. No yeah, room if you for, have time uh, to read, it's you're going to learn something. Okay. You don't, there's no time for superfluous activities. Wow. Yeah. Man, that sucks. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, so that's why my dad encouraged me to read various things. Oh, and be like, hey, don't be like yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. He's okay. like, don't. This is a model of what not right, to do. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, oh, okay. He demonstrated that really well when I was a kid. Nice. Um. <laughs> well, yeah. So it did get me into other stuff. Sure. Yeah, um, yeah. I uh, I probably after the Watchmen. I definitely read V after Watchmen. I watched. I read. Um, you ever read Black Hole? No. By Charles Burns. Any? Do you ever like? So I started like Fanographics. It's up in Seattle. Okay. They're like a comics publishing company. Okay. Kind of like Dark Horse a bit. Yeah, but like more like... Geared towards publishing. Well, just more like artsy. I don't even know. Artsy is the weird word. Indie kind of. um, Limited run. Well, it's just like... They just maybe... They they stepped much more outside of the superhero, I would say. Like Dark Horse kind of stays in within the like kind of... You kind, you know, alternative and sci-fi. And yeah, yeah. Whereas, like, you know, fucking. Well, some some production houses do just like uh, yeah. d- drama or crime or, or detective yeah. stuff, and some do you know uh, westerns or right. whatever. You know, but like, Fanographics does good yeah. stuff, and I read a lot of. You know, they put out a lot of good shit that I've read over the years, and nice. anytime I'm at a library, it's you know. That's kind of like oh look oh let's see what's out there so yeah because because random little shops unfortunately have taken a pretty bad hit with with all what's been going on the last couple of years you know like even yeah. even chains like uh, you know places like Everyday Music where you know, they're the audio industry is definitely taking a hit sure the, the visual industry is taking a hit uh, movie theaters are shutting down more and more people are turning to streaming. Yeah, more and more. But you can't really stream. Movies are being ad- adapted for this, you know you television. Can't, you can't really stream a graphic novel though, which is good. Yeah, no, that's true. And so I don't. All these people who are reading them on the the tablet, I I don't understand that at all. I mean, I get it because you, it's convenient. You can have a fucking million of them on there, but actually having the book in your hands is yeah. like you're not going to replace that to me. I don't. I, I mean, right. I was reading a PDF version of The Gods Themselves, which is what I did last episode with Jamie Carbone, and I mean, I, it's just it's not just, this. No, I, I had no investment in it. I was just scrolling yeah. words, and like I, I had to reread it a couple of times yeah. because I was just not engaged the same way. I need a tactile experience. You need with the book as well. Yeah, you gotta have sure. the book. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I need to wake up with the book half open on my chest. Right. You know, like, yep, and still want to read it. Totally, totally. Well, Jake, so where where can we hear you perform next? Um, check my website, thecomedianjake.com. That's where all my dates are. Um, cool. Yeah, I'm kind of around the Pacific Northwest. You know, well, we're we're about to hear you. Hear yeah, I guess you're about to my, hear me. Yeah, do the, yeah I'm about to eat shit. I think because I don't have much <laughs> new, but uh, that's all right. You know, that's what the mic is here for. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. mic works some stuff out, man. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, bud. Yeah, cool. Appreciate it. All right. Cool. Oh, yeah. I always have a fun time at Helium. It's a fantastic stage and crowd that always comes to laugh. Make sure you stick around for the end of the episode because I have a clip of Jake from one of the many times he's taken the stage there. He delivers the laughs no matter what form of transportation is required to get the job done. That reference will only make sense if you stick around to the end and listen, which I guarantee is worth it because Jake is a super funny dude. Besides, what do you have going on anyway? But in the meantime, here's this week's set of sopping wet water cooler facts. That's right, folks. It's time for this week's water cooler facts. Since we just reviewed both the graphic novel and the 2009 movie to an extent, 
Let's dive into some facts behind the author, Alan Moore. Alan Moore, born on the 18th of November 1953, is an English writer known primarily for his work in comic books including Watchmen, V for Vendetta, The Ballad of Halo Jones, Swamp Thing, Batman The Killing Joke, and From Hell. Regarded by many as the best comics writer in the English language, he is widely recognized among his peers and critics. He has occasionally used such pseudonyms as Kurt Vile, Jill DeRay, Brillburn Logue, and Translucia Baboon. Also, reprints of some of his work have been credited to the original writer when Moore requested that his name be removed. Moore started writing for British underground and alternative fanzines in the late 1970s before achieving success publishing comic strips in such magazines as 2000 AD and Warrior. It was during the 1970s that Alan Moore became a cartoonist and began publishing his work in various publications under the pen names Translucia Baboon, Jill DeRay, and Kurt Vile. It was while working for Warrior, a British anthology magazine, that Alan became well known for his series Miracle Men and V for Vendetta. In 1982 and 1983, Alan Moore won the British Eagle Award for Best Comics Writer, and he was published by Marvel UK frequently from 1980 to 1984. Before he made the transition to US comic books, Moore had found a measure of success working on British comic books. In fact, it should be mentioned that it was his work on 2000 AD that convinced DC Comics editor Len Wein to hire him to revitalize the saga of the Swamp Thing. The result was a comic book series that proved to be a success in both critical and commercial terms, so much so that it encouraged DC Comics to hire more British writers such as Grant Morrison and Neil Gaiman. Moore was subsequently picked up by DC Comics as the first comics writer living in Britain to do prominent work in America, where he worked on major characters such as Batman in The Killing Joke. By the way, said story has been very influential on the Batman mythos. For example, it's the one that featured the Joker's famous line about having one bad day driving a normal person insane. Likewise, it's the one that saw Barbara Gordon being paralyzed by a bullet in the spine, thus paving the way for her to become Oracle. Moore was also highly influential in the Superman canon with Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow. Saga of the Swamp Thing from 1983 was the first American comic series that Alan Moore was hired to write. He wrote for the Swamp Thing series for three years. In 1986, Alan Moore's comic book Watchmen is believed to have redefined comic books in general, and Watchmen is considered by many to be the best comic ever published. During that decade, Moore helped to bring about greater social respectability for comics in the United States and United Kingdom alike. He prefers the term comic to graphic novel, although I happen to find them interchangeable. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, he left the comic industry mainstream and went independent for a while, working on experimental works such as the epic From Hell and the prose novel Voice of the Fire. He subsequently returned to the mainstream later in the 1990s, working for Image Comics, before developing America's Best Comics, an imprint through which he published works such as The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and the occult-based Promethea. In 2016, he published Jerusalem, a 1,266-page experimental novel set in his hometown of Northampton, UK. I know it's Northampton, or however they pronounce it, but it looks like Northampton, so sorry. Enjoy your bangers and mash. Whatever. Nobody listens to this in the UK yet anyway, so... Anyway, Moore is an occultist, ceremonial magician, and anarchist, and has featured such themes in works including Promethea, From Hell, and V for Vendetta, as well as performing avant-garde spoken word occult workings with the Moon and Serpent Grand Egyptian Theater of Marvels, some of which have been released on CD. Despite his many objections, Moore's works have provided the basis for several Hollywood films, including From Hell in 2001, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen in 2003, V for Vendetta in 2005, and Watchmen in 2009. Moore has also been referenced in popular culture and has been recognized as an influence on a variety of literary and television figures, including Neil Gaiman and Damon Lindelof. He has lived a significant portion of his life in Northampton, England, and he has said in various interviews that his stories draw heavily from his experiences living there. It is interesting to note that Moore had a rough time in school. 
In part, this is because he went into a secondary school that catered to students from a more well-off background, with the result that he went from being one of the best students in his class to being one of the worst students in his class. However, this situation wasn't helped by the fact that Moore didn't have much of an interest in academic study anyway. Eventually, Moore winded up getting expelled from the secondary school for dealing LSD, not least because he made the cardinal mistake of using his own product. You know, never get high on your own supply. Well, LSD's not that bad. So, given that Moore is an actual no-kidding magician who conducts magical ceremonies, some people might expect him to be sympathetic toward conspiracy theorists. However, this isn't necessarily the case. As Moore sees it, there are conspiracy theories in real life, but none of them can claim the kind of influence ascribed to them by their believers. Instead, Moore thinks that people believe in conspiracy theories because that makes for a more comforting view of the world than the standard view in which no one is in control of what happens, which, I mean, let's face it, that's what's going on. Moore ventured into his own comic production house named America's Best Comics, but after a series of mishaps and misfortune, Moore found it a struggle to say the least to get his works out without external influence. Despite the assurances that DC Comics would not interfere with Moore in his work, they subsequently did so, angering him. Specifically in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen number 5, an authentic vintage advertisement for a quote-unquote Marvel brand douche caused DC executive Paul Levitz to order the entire print run destroyed and reprinted with the advertisement amended to quote, amaze to avoid friction with DC's competitor Marvel Comics. A cobweb story Moore wrote for Tomorrow's Stories number 8, featuring references to L. Ron Hubbard, American occultist Jack Parsons, and the quote, Babylon working, was blocked by DC Comics due to the subject matter. DC had already published a version of the same event in their Paradox Press volume, The Big Book of Conspiracies. With many of the stories he had planned for America's Best Comics brought to an end, and with his increasing dissatisfaction with how DC Comics were interfering with his work, he decided to once more pull out of the comics mainstream. In 2005, he remarked that, quote, I love the comics medium. I pretty much detest the comics industry. Give it another 15 months, I'll probably be pulling out of the mainstream commercial comics, end quote. There's a lot more to Alan Moore's career and life than what I'm able to cover here, and I encourage you to look into his catalog and what his works say about our society at large. Moore has seemingly retired since 2019, so I don't think we'll be seeing too much out of him, unfortunately, which should give you some time to catch up on his catalog. Now, if the amalgamation of facts presented to you in this episode doesn't convince you to stop what you're doing and head to your nearest bookstore, and if you're in Portland, that could be Powell's or your local haunt, and snag a copy of the graphic novel, then do yourself a favor and read more comics and graphic novels. They are awesome. Support the writers and artists. They are super talented, and I assure you, you will find something that you like. There are hundreds upon thousands of options to choose from. I'd like to thank the sources I use for today's episode. Those would be mentalfloss.com, factinate.com, usesdaily.com, which has a very extensive article about the series at large, and uh, a great look at author Alan Moore by Alan Lee at tvovermind.com, as well as cinemablend.com and trusty old Wikipedia. Couple that with the half dozen times I've read the graphic novel, and voila, you get today's episode. Speaking of Alan Moore, we'll definitely be covering another classic story of his, V for Vendetta. Again, both the graphic novel and movie will get the science factual treatment. That's where I watch and or read the source material for each episode in my underwear, while shouting at the television wherever I see inconsistencies and continuity and various references to other pop culture that I happen to know. Next week, we're getting back into a movie-centric episode all about the fantastical Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I'll be going over the radio broadcast and novel series, plus an interview with Portland comedian the very funny Imani Dene. We got to meet up before the Kelly's Olympian mic to chat all about the iconic sci-fi staple. This episode wouldn't be complete without my thanks to you, the listener, for listening. To my wonderful wife Amanda for being my research and life partner, and you know I have to send some nerve to my family at Shady Pines Radio. 
You can catch a lot of awesome shows each and every day at almost any given time by downloading the Shady Pines radio app wherever apps are procured. In the meantime, you can catch me each and every Tuesday from 8 to 9 a.m. on Shady Pines Radio and anytime on Spotify and Mixcloud. All right, folks, here it is, Jake Silberman at the Helium Comedy Club. Enjoy! Thank you. Oh, I just took the bus over here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I feel like uh, I feel like that's kind of my vibe, you know. It's kind of like I need a ride vibe. That's what Daddy's giving off up here. So uh, hit me up after the show, Daddy. That's what I'm talking about. Bus, man. The bus is tough. Uh, feel bad for those drivers. It's like a psych ward on wheels. That's a rough one. That's a rough one. I think they should put the social service offices in the back of the bus. You know what I'm saying? It's like, oh, you're going downtown? You're also going to get a caseworker, all right? <laughs> you're a danger to everybody around you, so. Yeah. Whole community comes together on the bus, a lot of people. Uh, I actually have a Nazi that rides mine. Lucky Jew right here got a Nazi. Uh, stoked. It's a, it's a lady Nazi, so that's new, you know. Fresh take on an old classic, you know, like. <laughs> Sick. Yeah. I don't know how you can feel superior to anybody when you ride the bus. That seems a, that's a stretch, I'd say. You know what I'm saying? Like, if there is a master race, none of them have bus passes, I guarantee. <laughs> I guarantee they don't have a bus pass. Very confusing. I don't know. Yeah, when I get on the bus, I'm like, this is dope. They're losers of every race. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. You can't be standing in a bus stop and yell a slur slur at somebody and then just have them drive by in their car and be like, yeah, my bus comes in 13 minutes. Okay. (laughs) I'm better. Yeah, so how how would I describe uh, this lady Nazi... I would say handsome and portly. How about that, huh? She's a fat, ugly lady. I don't know how else to say it. I don't know how else to say it. I'm not protecting a Nazi's feelings up here. Are we okay with body shaming Nazis? Half the room on the Nazi side. Hello, buddy. Look, I know she hates the Jews, but she ain't that bad, okay? <laughs> Tight. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's crazy. She's, uh, I just, I can't look at a Nazi and be like, hey, your ideology is really problematic, but that body, that's just brave, okay? Huh? You're only ugly on the inside. Don't let the world tell you otherwise, huh? Love a big, thick-ass Nazi, you know what I'm saying? Huh? Hot. Got a swastika with stretch marks? Hell yeah. Traversing your skin like you did to Europe? That's fucking awesome, baby. Good stuff. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> she rides the bus every day, and she has an uh, iPad full of racist memes that she just goes through, and uh, it's weird hearing a heavy racist laugh, because it's not a laugh, it's a chortle. It's just a, you know, and uh, this lady just chortling in the back. (laughs) (laughs) Terrifying. Oh, God. What's wrong with you? Yeah, it was crazy. Um, She's, uh... (laughs) I know, I'm just saying, like, if you quit hating the Jews, I'll be more body positive. How about that? That's fair, I think. But she's a, she's a mom, actually. Got a little hate nugget on the bus every day. Yeah. Terrifying little troll baby. Uh, it's weird. It's weird. But uh, I don't know. Like, now we're allowed to hit Nazis. You can punch them right in the face. And uh, I'm still debating if I'm going to assault this mom or not. I don't know. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, you really got to let the bus know, like, hey, I don't hate women. I'm just defeating a fascist. This is fine. <laughs> Why did that guy deck that mom? He's like, it's okay. It was for America. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Great stuff. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to lie, I've always wanted to have sex with a Nazi. Uh, just as a challenge, you know? Because that's how you know you're good in bed, you know? If you just take a Nazi woman to bed, I'm a Jewish guy, and she's like, I hate your people. You give her the good dick, she's like, wow, Hitler really made a mistake on that one. That's, uh... <laughs> you guys have been a lot of fun. Thanks so much.